Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. We will be starting a new season of Jury Duty on February 28th with our examination of the Kenosha, Wisconsin murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. You can find a trailer for that new season in our feed. However, before we start Jury Duty Season 4, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in Seasons 1 and 2 of this podcast. Jury Duty has secured exclusive interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kliteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, we heard from Carmen and John about their memories of the testimonies of witnesses who were especially close to Susan Berman. In this episode, they offer their memories of the witness testimonies that they consider particularly damaging to the defense case. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that they mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. That's all coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We begin today's excerpts from my conversation with juror number 12 and jury foreperson Carmen Kliteka by asking her about her memory of the testimony of Robert Durst's friend, Emily Altman. Let's talk about Emily Altman's testimony. What do you remember about that? I remember just watching this woman testify for, I don't know, hours and hours. She was just playing this role, pretending not to know anything. And, like, playing a fool, dodging questions. I remember just being, like, super frustrated with her. Felt like she was, like, hiding something. And then at the end, sure enough, she dropped the ball. She said that thing about the hotel, and she sort of gave it away. And also when she said she called her husband, and her husband told her not to say that stuff. (laughs) I thought it was funny that she came back and she told us what her husband told her. She was not my favorite witness, and I was really glad when her testimony was finally over because I I was really sick of her, honestly. I thought her testimony was perhaps the most important moment in the case for the prosecution, and not because of how it fit into the trial that was presented to you. But I believe that if it hadn't been for her admitting that Durst told her he was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan's killing, that Durst never would have admitted that he was there, that he wrote the cadaver note. Even with the evidence that Jarecki and Sarah Kaufman put together about the similarity in the handwriting, I think Durst would have continued to deny it. I think that at a certain point, he felt he couldn't deny both the handwriting and the Emily Altman statement. Right. I think given that uh, she, she made that statement about the hotel, which placed him in Los Angeles, that was going to be really, really difficult for Durst to recover from. Right after she said that, I remember they played Durst's reaction to that. He had a phone call and he was really upset and he was talking about that 
I think he was on the phone with her husband. I mean, he, they all knew. That just, you know, solidifies it, you know, it confirms it. Let's talk about Nick Chavin's testimony. Tell me about your experience of that. What were you expecting going in and what was the impact of his statements? Nick Chavin, his testimony was very, very compelling. Like we could see that struggle that he had, or I could see it. You know, he he had this very, very close relationship with Robert Durst. They were best friends for many, many years. They had a long history together. And then there came a point where he had to do the right thing. And you could see that, that struggle within him. And you could see, like, initially he was like, oh, no, no, no. And he was standing by Robert Durst. I think maybe at first he just thought it would just go away and that would be the end of it. But then I think later he realized what a burden it had become on him and his wife. And I think that there came a point where that was just too much to bear. And I think he had to come to terms with it himself and be at peace with it himself. And I think the only way he was going to get that peace is uh, by doing what he did, by cooperating and coming forth with everything that he knew. It was very, very interesting for me to see that growth that he had. And I think it must have... It must have been very difficult, and I think it took a lot of courage. And uh, I was very impressed by him, how far he had come. As you reflected on the conversation last time, was there anything that you thought of in the last few days or after we hung up that you wanted to make sure that you told me? Yeah, I was thinking about the uh, jury selection. I don't know if I remember uh, mentioning that. I thought... For sure, I was going to be weeded out by their very fancy uh, jury selection consultants. But in addition to that, because they, they didn't weed me out, I thought that was malpractice. Well, first of all, I have to uh, preface that by saying I, I'm not an attorney and I have no legal training. But this just seems to me like pretty fundamental thing that even a person like me with no legal training could see that that's not a good idea to have me on the jury. Like I said before, because of my background in pathology and, I mean, as a female physician pathologist who subspecializes in DNA work and, in addition, has previous experience in forensics. And I was very forthcoming with that information. That was not something that I revealed later. This was included in the questionnaire. And why do you think that that would have been bad for the defense in this case? Some of the stuff that they presented in the case was nonsensical. And I was able to identify that immediately and explain to my fellow jurors why it couldn't be. And can you give me some specifics on that front? When they brought in that uh, psychologist, expert witness lady, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, she was talking about a case in which she had testified previously. And uh, John Lewin described the case as a woman and her daughters, very young daughters who were murdered. And anyway, she gave like some sort of, you know, false memory testimony on that case. And later, like they found that there was DNA evidence for that defendant linking him to that case. (laughs) She gave this explanation 
and I'm sorry, I don't re remember like all the details exactly, but I think what I can remember is that she said that the reason why they found his DNA with, with the bodies is because the uh, medical examiners, the way that they handle the cases and the way that the testing is done, that it was just contamination and that happens all the time, which is completely nonsensical. And uh, somebody who works in the laboratory and who worked in the medical examiner's office, these cases and this evidence, everything is handled very, very carefully and it's kept separate. All the DNA evidence is wrapped, carefully wrapped and, and kept separate from each other within the same case. And then the cases are wrapped and kept separate from each other. So you're not going to have evidence from one case mixing with another. And there's a lot of protocol and a structure in place. It's widely used and it's been used for many years and it works pretty well to make sure that that doesn't happen and everything is kept separate. So the explanation that she gave, and here's what bothered me, is she gave it with so much confidence. You know, this is probably a person that's never even been inside a laboratory before, but she presented it as fact. So she was telling me how things are handled in the laboratory, which you can imagine I <laughs> can't take that very well. When you say you wouldn't be a good witness, I immediately think of the things that you wouldn't have known at the time, like the fact that Kathy went to medical school, you know, that Robert Durst tossed all of her medical books out, that Durst was going to be testifying about the blood that Robert Durst saw around Susan Berman after she'd been killed, things like that, that you wouldn't have known. But initially, you must have thought, well, they must have a reason. These are smart guys. So I guess there's stuff going on here that I don't, I'm not really aware of. At what point during the trial did you say they were really stupid to include me on the panel? The moment when I realized that is when I found out that Kathy was a fourth-year medical student, because at that moment, I was able to identify with her. And they weren't going to be able to reach you with any of the arguments that they were throwing out there? Well, no, no, that's not true. At that moment... Having that identification with, with that person, I think it changes your perspective a little bit. But I at all times felt that I would be that I would be a, a fair and, and impartial and I would be able to objectively look at all the data that was presented, even though I was able to identify with one of the victims. You've already said some things about Dr. Loftus, but is there anything else you want to say about the impact of her testimony and the impact of her as a person on, on you as a juror? It seemed like she, you know, did a lot of work in her career and had some significant contributions in her field. But I think at some point, something happened. <laughs> I think she moved away from that trajectory. And it took a turn and started doing something else with her research and her stuff. I think she discovered that she could probably make a lot of money, more so than, you know, just a psychologist at a university. So honestly, I mean, I think it's shameful that she um, used her research and her discoveries to discredit witnesses and their, their testimonies. I think that's shameful. And I think she's tainted herself. And the defense 
in their introduction of her, they gave a long list of her many accolades and her education and uh, her standing in the list of like, greatest psychologists. And I uh, just went on and on. I thought it was interesting, though, at, at one point, Lewin referred to her standing on, on the list. And I think she was like number 59 or something. And he said, number 60. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. It's 59. 59. She quickly corrected him. Lewin later made uh, another error in addressing her. He said that she was a physician. And she said, yes, 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 I am. Which is not true. She's a psychologist. She didn't jump to correct him there. I thought that was funny. Some of the work that she has done has actually have hurt people. And I don't really like what she's doing, what she stands for. Also, she is a like distinguished professor at University of California, Irvine. And so that makes me wonder about their judgment and who's running that place over there. When she talked about Mela, I was really annoyed with her. She tried to discredit everything Mela had told us when, when she was on the stand, um, everything that she remembered. So much of what Elizabeth Loftus I found offensive. But I found what she said about Mela especially offensive. How she tried to like minimize her memories of her mother, these important things that she had told her. And that, you know, she, she held on to and she came over and shared with us. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We now return to my interview with juror number two, John Okanishi, and hear his memories of these same witnesses. Okay, I want to talk about Stuart and Emily Altman and their testimony. During our coverage of the trial, I came to the conclusion that Emily Altman's testimony and especially her statement that Robert Durst was in Beverly Hills, that Robert Durst told her that he was in Beverly Hills at the time of Susan's death, was the single most important piece of testimony in the entire trial because it was my belief that that piece of testimony triggered Robert Durst ultimately acknowledging that he wrote the cadaver note. Even with the evidence of the similarity between the two envelopes and the handwriting on the two envelopes, how did Emily Altman's recorded testimony strike you as you were watching it? Emily Altman, her it was it was another example of witnesses who are just trying to be, you know, very, very evasive. I mean, they they were not telling the whole truth. And what was the reason for that? 
One thing that I, I just recall that uh, Emily Altman, or maybe it was both Altmans, had the ability to uh, you know, release the, uh, the reporter's notes. Right. Charlie Bagley's yeah, notes. Char- yeah, Charlie Bagley. So, yeah, the Charlie Bagley's, you know, notes, you know, could have weighed very, uh, you know, highly in this whole, whole trial. To get to the truth. I mean, they were both like, you know, yeah, we're going to tell the truth. And then there was always that, well, Charles Bagley's notes, you know, are, could be very critical to showing the truth. And yet on, uh, you know, cross-examination by, you know, Mr. Lewin, it's like if the notes potentially are going to point, you know, to what the truth is, why won't you release them? And she kept saying, because it's my right, because it's my right. She kept always saying that because it's my right not to be able to allow those notes to be released. And I always, and I thought, well, it's it's also your right to allow those notes to be re- released as well. But you know, she just kept repeating that. And it got to a point where like, there's a reason why you're being evasive here. So th- I, that was a, a key takeaway for me. Her demeanor was very always nervous, you know, at the time. And even even at the fact that um, Mr. Lewin's, you know, cross-examination of her was, uh, uh, was you know, it was pretty heavy. I mean, she, she, you know, she admitted that, you know, she felt, you know, she was being uh, bullied. That even after that, she would, always, and sometimes she, you know, she would always respond with a very kind of a nervous smile or laugh, you know, even, even after being, uh, you know, seemingly, uh, you know, beat up by the prosecution. I thought that was very, very odd in that, uh, you know, she was just trying to play a role or, or be very careful as to what, you know, information she would actually, you know, admit to. And I guess at a, at a weak moment, you know, she was caught in the fact that, uh, you know, she knew that Durst was in Los Angeles at the time. And then the, the fact that, you know, she had talked to her husband and husband says, you know what, I think you just got mixed up there. And then, you know, she came back and says, yeah, I, I was wrong. I just got mixed up. I mean, it just, it's, it was, so, it was just so unbelievable in that, you know, anything that, you know, everything that she was saying or the key points that she was admitting to were lies. Did it occur to you or to any of the other jurors during deliberations that it was Emily Altman's acknowledgement that Robert Durst said he was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan's murder that led Durst to admit that he wrote the cadaver note? It was it was that, but also the feeling, you know, as you mentioned, he, you know, he knew that if you they got handwriting experts in and they started comparing it, then it would be, you know, pretty obvious that, you know, he wrote the note. Durst, it's it's almost like if for for some things, if he had if he admitted to, you know, some of the littler things, it would give more credibility to the bigger lies. So I saw him sometimes as, you know, admitting to things as, well, if I'm going to admit to this small thing, then, you know, you have to believe the bigger things uh, that I say. So his admittal that he was in Los Angeles was, believe me, if if I'm telling the truth about this, if I'm admitting to this, you know, you got to believe me that I didn't murder Susan Berman. I want to move on to the testimony of Nick Chavin. Tell me what your impressions of Nick Chavin were as he testified. Nick Chavin, when during his testimony, he seemed to me like a, 
a guy where, you know, he's one of his best friends kills another best friend. So he's put in a very, you know, difficult situation. I thought of it as a person, if we could maybe, um, you know, uh, personalize it to ourselves where, you know, you know, you know, your father is beating up your mother. So are you, are you going to actually go to the police and testify against your father? You know, even though that might be the, the right thing, I I saw him kind of in the same you know situation with regards to both you know Susan Berman and Robert Durst, and I think he was probably hoping that somebody else was going to step up and do the right thing, and so he didn't have to get you know involved in this. So I think you know initially you know he tried to be loyal to his friend Robert Durst but it it just became more and more evident that it was it was up to him to do the right thing you know, to see that justice was done. And so even though the defense said, well, you know, how can you believe Nick Chavin? I mean, initially, you know, he said some of these things never happened and now he's saying they happened. You know, how can you believe that? But, you know, I, I could see that the same amount of guilt, you know, over the years just became stronger and stronger. And ultimately, you know, he did the right thing. So when he when he testified to us, and I think, you know, for the, for the jurors, this is probably... One of the key things where, uh, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that we felt Robert Durst was guilty is when Nick Chavin said, testified that Durst said, it was her or me, I had to do it. I want to move on to the one defense witness besides Robert Durst. We spoke a little bit about her in our last conversation. Let's talk about Dr. Loftus, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus and her testimony. At the end of the testimony, did you feel that she had any credibility about any aspect of what she said? I felt that, yeah, Dr. Loftus really didn't have a lot of credibility I, you know, acknowledge that she had a very, you know, impressive resume. I never doubted her, you know, standing in uh, academia. But then she seemed like, you know, she was almost like a, you know, a professional, you know, witness, you know, witness for pay. She came across as not, you know, the most you know, likable person. You know, she was, uh, she came across as, as arrogant. Uh, that didn't help her. But I think, you know, Mr. Lewin did a another devastating cross examination of her to take any type of you know credibility away. The one takeaway that I get that I took is here's a memory expert, and um, you know Mr. Lewin said, well, you know I wanted to record that conversation between us, and don't you think that you know recording a conversation is is the best way to do. Uh, to capture the quotes, to capture the the facts, and not rely on memory. So why would why would a memory expert you know refuse to have a conversation recorded? And she really didn't have anything you know to say to that. And I think it was at that moment any shred of credibility you know she might have had you know for me based upon her Im- impressive resume, it just evaporated. We're now going to relive some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections. We begin with Emily Altman. Under questioning from Deputy DA John Lewin, Ms. Altman testifies about conversations she had with New York Times reporter Charles Bagley. Have you ever discussed with Mr. Bagley or ever told him that you had information from Bob Durst Not necessarily as to whether Mr. Durst committed the murder, but where he was at the time of Susan Berman's murder. Since so many don't remember, 
ma'am. So if you didn't have any information about from Robert Durst about where he was at the time of Susan Berman's murder, would your answer be with reference to relating such information to Mr. Bagley? No, I didn't. No, what I'm saying to you is that I simply don't remember the conversations they had with Mr. Bagley. That's all I'm saying. So, ma'am, then is what you're telling me that you could have had a conversation with Mr. Bagley where you related to him statements Bob Durst told you about where he was at the time of Susan Berman's murder. All I can tell you is that I don't remember what conversations they had with Mr. Bagley going back a long time, and I don't remember. In case you couldn't hear it, Ms. Altman said, All I can tell you is that I don't remember what communications I had with Charles Bagley. It was a long time ago, and I don't remember. Lewin later asks Ms. Altman what Bob Durst told her about where he was when Susan Berman was killed. Did Bob Durst ever tell you in the course of your relationship as friends that he was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's murder? I think he said he was in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, excuse me, at some time, but I don't remember specifically saying he was there when Susie Berman was murdered. When he's saying he's in Los Angeles, you're talking about at the time Susie Berman was murdered, correct? In December. So he said he was in Los Angeles in December of 2000, correct? Yes. Did you ask him specifically what dates in December of 2000 he was in Los Angeles? Ma'am, are you aware, as you sit here today, that Mr. Durst has never admitted to investigators or to the media that he was in Los Angeles in December of 2000? Are you aware of that? No, not. Next, we have excerpts from the interview of Durst and Berman's longtime friend, Nick Chavin. Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy. And I said, no, he didn't. And she said, yes, he did. And we argued about that. And she said, we love both of them. Kathy's gone. We love Bob. We need to protect him. Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me. How many times did you and Susan have such a conversation? Approximately half a dozen times we argue on a consistent basis over that. When you would argue about it, does that mean that when she originally told you, you didn't believe her? That's correct. And you said that Bob Durst was your best friend. Is that correct? Yes. Do you believe that you were Bob's best friend? Possibly, with just with the exception of Susan Berman, I thought I was. Did you believe that Susan was closer to Bob than you were? Yes. Mr. Chavin, can you please describe your level of shock when you learned that Robert Durst had dismembered Morris Black's body with his hands and tools? Extreme shock. Disbelief. If someone were to have told you that that had happened, without an admission by Mr. Durst that he had done it, would you ever have believed that the Robert Durst you knew could have done such a thing? 
Of course not. Did the situation with Susan Berman being murdered, and then shortly thereafter, Morris Black being killed, and then admittedly dismembered by Mr. Durst, did that affect your view of what Susan had originally told you about Bob's involvement in Kathy's death? Very much so. One of the primary foundations of my belief that Bob was not responsible for Kathy's disappearance or what happened to Susan was that I couldn't believe that he was capable of hands-on violence against someone at that extreme. But hereafter, admitting that he was, it's like taking the gloves off. All, all things are possible now. This next clip is from a telephone conversation involving Deputy DAs John Lewin and Habib Balian and Nick Chavin as the prosecutors seek information from Chavin about what Robert Durst might have told him. Okay, so tell me, so what is your memory about what Susan said about um, Bob having killed Kathy? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard for me to say. Can I think about it if I want to talk about that? Hey, Nick, can, can you tell me, is it because of your loyalty to Bob? Uh, I mean, it's understandable. You can be honest about yeah. it. We're just trying to figure I, out what... I mean, is, is, yeah. is, is it because you guys are still friends, or...? I love Susan because she's a dear, dear friend. Yeah. And the same with Bob, so this well, thing with your, your, your best friend killing your other best friend. And here's Chavin offering one of the most critical pieces of testimony in the entire trial. At a certain point in time, sometime in late 2014, did you have a dinner with Robert Durst? Yes. Leading up to this dinner, did you and Mr. Durst have at least one discussion about what the purpose was going to be for this dinner? Yes. Bob said, first he, he changed the place of where we would eat. And then he said he wanted to have dinner with me. He wanted to talk to me about Kathy and Susan. Did he explain to you what that was about? No. Based on your relations with him and what you knew, what did you believe at that time his comment meant? I believed that the only thing it could be about would be the unanswered questions about whether he was responsible for the disappearance and death of Susan Brown. By this point in time, were you starting to suspect that Mr. Durst was involved with not only his wife's disappearance, which you testified to previously, but for Susan's death as well? Yes. When you went to dinner that night, did the subject of Kathy and Susan come up? At the dinner itself, we're saying no. And were you waiting for that subject to come up? Yes. Well, at least once I was, and then I forgot. I want you to describe what happened at the end of that dinner. The dinner concluded, and it was then that I... As we got up to leave, I realized that we hadn't discussed the two things that he had mentioned, Kathy and Susan. I felt kind of weird that 
I didn't bring it up. Right. We walked out the door. This is hard. We walked out the door, and on the sidewalk, I said, we wanted to talk about Susan. And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. And then he turned to walk away and I said, you wanted to talk about Kathy. And he just kept walking away. Nothing more was said. Finally, we have excerpts from John Lewin's cross-examination of Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, an expert in the field of false and repressed memory called by the defense. Um, Doctor, in the last 40 years, you've testified in court almost 300 times, right? Approximately 300 times, yes. So, Dr. Loftus, have you and I met before? I don't recall. It's possible. You testified in a case in 2012, People versus Jackson. That was a murder trial that I prosecuted in Torrance in front of the Honorable Mark Arnold. You came to Torrance and testified. Do you recall that? Uh, I do remember, I do believe I remember testifying in, in Torrance on occasion, but I'm sorry if I didn't recognize you with your mask. Do you consider yourself to be a neutral witness? I think so. Well, in fact, ma'am, when you testified at the Jackson case at page 42, lines three through six, I asked you the following. Do you consider yourself to be a neutral witness? And you responded, I'm a neutral witness as far as the science. Uh, as far as the science, I'm not neutral. I'm, you know, in favor of truth. And I said, so as you sit here today, my question is given everything that you know, as you sit here, do you consider yourself to be an unbiased witness? And you responded, yes. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I agree with my former self, yes. Okay. Do you agree, ma'am, that it's it's important for a psychologist like yourself who testifies in court not to be an advocate? Well, I think it's wise to try not to be an advocate. Um, sometimes as a human, especially if you feel that somebody is innocent or being railroaded or being overcharged, it's it's hard to not have feelings. Okay, so let me ask you again my question. I didn't ask you how you felt about it. Just listen to my question. Do you believe that it is important for a psychologist who is there, quote, to just talk about the science to make sure that they are not an advocate. Do you agree with that? I think that's something to strive for, yes. Let me add a little more. If I believe a defendant is innocent, if I believe in his innocence with all my heart and soul, then I probably can't help but become an advocate of sorts. Is that something you agree with? Well, that's something that sounds like something I might have said, yes. So, ma'am, isn't it true, despite what you've said, that you're neutral and unbiased, that you favor the defense side? In my experience in criminal cases, I have testified on behalf of defense, the defense typically. In civil cases, it can be either side. But that's because uh, it's usually the prosecution that has a, a witness who's got a memory issue. Let's talk about your past client list. Ted Bundy, Hillside Strangler, Timothy McVeigh, O.J. Simpson, the Menendez brothers, Michael Jackson, Phil Spector, Martha Stewart, Jerry Sandusky, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein. Do you actually believe that the individuals that I just named were victims of either false memories or bad identifications, your areas of study? 
it's not my position to judge whether they're guilty or not, but there were memory issues in those cases. I want to talk about confidence versus accuracy. Would you agree there is a correlation in memory between how confident someone is of their memory versus how accurate their meaning is? Meaning that it correlates that the more confident a person is in their memory, the more accurate the memory tends to be? Uh, well, certainly that's, that seems to be true if there is no contamination or post-event suggestion, right. that there is some relationship between confidence and accuracy. And you'd acknowledge there's a body of research that supports this correlation, correct? A body of research that supports? The correlation between confidence in memory and accuracy. Well, yes, I just uh, said that. No, you said that was your position. I'm now asking if there's a body of research that supports it. Yes. That concludes this bonus episode of Jury Duty. Join us in our next episode as we hear from Carmen and John about their memories of the witness testimonies from individuals who have remained steadfastly loyal to Robert Durst. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Terracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.